Okay, welcome back to the Backyard Professor videos. I'm, I'm in the process of, uh, hopefully, producing a book on the Mithraic Mysteries. And I have discovered that they're a very good uh, jumping in point for the study of the mysteries as a whole. And uh, a good friend of mine from Florida State and I have been talking about them. But I wanted to share something else that is, is uh, also involved that is really important. I had an experience online this week that I really do want to share with you, simply because it's so startling, and it's so simple. Uh, a very good friend of mine uh, recently posted that his young daughter, and I, I don't know her age, so, but he posted that his young daughter said, Dad, I don't want to go to church anymore, because it's the only place that expects me to be phony, to be fake. I, I can't, I can't be myself. Now that's, that, that, that's positively shocking. Uh, if, if religion has gotten to the point where we are no longer good enough how we are, but we have to put on airs and we have to be someone else that we're not for the sake of the image of the church then I would have to propose seriously that religion is no longer worth it, right? Uh, I mean, give me any other choice, yeah? Well, I want to share with you some of, the, uh, some of the information that I have been researching into, and it dawned on me when I was just finishing reading uh, Suetonius's The Twelve Caesars. Uh, he's an early Roman historian. Uh, it dawned on me, my goodness, I, I have, from various cultural points of view and different ends, uh, the Romans and, and their experiences, and the, the Greeks and their experiences, and the ancient Egyptians and their experiences, there is something here that's worth talking about in relation to this little girl's feelings of of being of having to be inauthentic and and that's a real i mean if if religion is going to make us feel like we have to be inauthentic then definitely throw in the towel there's no point to it but it does not have to be that way now now this is what makes this uh, so remarkably interesting. Now, if you've discovered, for whatever reason, that uh, you're feeling like you're on the outside, that, or, or if you're not, you know, if you have to, if you're feeling alienated, that's not the end of the world. I guess that's what I'm trying to come across. And what I want to show you is some ideas from multiple different cultures, including your own, whatever you are. It doesn't matter whether you even proclaim a religion or not. I don't care. What I'm discovering is 
the human experience is what is going to be the precedent. That is where the real oomph lies, in my opinion. So let me share with you Suetonius's The Twelve Caesars. I just finished that in my research on the the Mithras mystery and, and the mysteries in general. And then Richard Reitzenstein, Hellenistic Mystery Religions. Now, I haven't completely gone through all of the appendixes of this. This is a mammoth book. But I have been through his main article on that one. And then Marvin Myers, The Ancient Mysteries, and this is a source book of sacred texts, very useful. And then the mysteries edited by Joseph Campbell. You can see all the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of tabs. Every one of those tabs are going to be put into my book <laughs> on Mithras. And then Jeremy Nadler, very important book on the shamanic wisdom in the pyramid texts from the ancient Egyptian point of view. What these all have in common, now I've got one that emphasizes the, the Egyptian angle. This one, The Mysteries, edited by Joseph Campbell, uh, the nice thing is it goes through the Islamic mysteries, the, the ancient Jewish mysteries, the Greek mysteries, the Christian mysteries. Uh, it, it spans the spectrum, the Kabiroi, the Attic mysteries, the Isis mysteries. It's really kind of a wonderful collection, as is Meyer's. Meyer is the direct texts from multiple different ancient religious traditions that is very nice. Uh, Reitzenstein does focus more on the actual Greek, uh, Eleusinian, uh, Mithraic uh, conglomeration. And then Suetonius is from the Roman side. Suetonius at this point is the only direct other than well, I mean, even Nadler. Nadler does go through the pyramid texts really well, and he's quoting a lot of them, uh, but I don't have that as the primary source. He, he would be considered a, a secondary source. What struck me about all of these uh, different traditions is the, uh, the idea of a person's experience with the divine and how that is and has been interpreted. Now when you get to, uh, I had a wonderful discussion with my dear friend Derek Lambert of Myth Vision Podcast. I'm going to be doing more podcasts with him also, live sessions with him. We talked about this. We talked about this idea that what would it be like to experience yet another dimension? You know, from Isaac Newton's day, he had the, well, we had the three dimensions. We live in a three-dimensional world. Along comes Einstein, and he brings in this fourth dimension of time, and he demonstrates that uh, space and time are not necessarily separate, but they are uh, 
they are connected in such a way, but he did bring in time as a fourth dimension. Now, I know mathematicians have described the fifth dimension. They, you know, you ha we have a 3D cube, height, width, and depth. Then we have a 4D cube, one that's involved in time. What would a fifth dimension cube look like? Well, we can't picture it. So the, the really cool analogy, actually, is the flatland analogy. What would a two-dimensional being who only had width and depth see if a three-dimensional object came through their experience, right? They wouldn't be able to define it as a 3D object because they don't have 3D. Well, is it a supernatural occurrence? Yeah. Or is it simply an experience that we just could not fathom? Because a circle that's going, that starts, let's say my arm represents a 2D flatland. They only get to see this way and depth-wise this way. If a 3D object came in a ball and broke that plane, it would not look like a circle to a flatlander. It would begin as a point. Then the point as the circle, as the ball, I wish I had a something circular, as the ball went through the flatland, the point would stretch out into a line, because in flatland you can't look up and you can't look down. You don't have that height. You only have the depth and the width. So an actual circle would begin as a point. It would stretch out to a line as wide as the ball's diameter. And then as the ball continued through, after it got halfway through, that line would shrink to a point, and then it would disappear. Well, to a flatlander, that would be utterly mind-boggling. They wouldn't know how to describe it other than a dot appeared and then it became a line and then it disappeared again and it came out of nowhere we have no idea it just showed up would it not be the same with us in our uh, four dimensions if something like that happened from the fifth dimension or even the sixth now quantum physics some parts some string theory uh, and they have been different postulations of uh, either 10 dimensions or 11 dimensions. Uh, I think right now they've gone back to 10. I'm, I'm willing to be corrected. I have not kept up with string theory like I used to. Uh, I don't know what they've been doing. I read Brian Greene's fabulous materials, but that's been several years. And I do watch him on YouTube. His science stuff on YouTube is really fun to watch. But this, this idea that there are other more hidden dimensions is actually a very real one. It, it's not that the scientists are trying to find ways to avoid the supernatural at all costs come hell or high water, and they're just proposing any stupid idiot theory out there they can to keep them from saying, well, it was God, or it was a supernatural 
dimension. That's not how the scientists are functioning. No, we're using the laws that we've come to understand, and there are some things, minimal though they are, I agree, but there are some things that we have a, a decent handle on in our three-dimensional world up to this point, 2022, that we've been working on for millennia. Um, but realistically, I'm not even kidding, the Pythagorean basis of number is still very real. And you say, well, he was an ancient mystic, he was primitive, he's outdated. No, you don't get a pull-out noise on me. No, that's not true. Now, it is true that uh, Euclid came along, of course, and he gave us uh, geometry, thank goodness for Euclid. But it was plain geometry. Kind of similar to this flatland thing. And when they began to study spherical geometry, they had to change many of the properties of, quote, real Euclidean geometry. Well, now we've discovered a yet further, wider, broader application that does have different ways of calculating areas of triangles and squares and circles and spheres, etc. And so we call it Euclidean and non-Euclidean geometry. It's not that they contradict, it's that this is a another discovered extra branch of information that we didn't have for several millennia and so you don't become anti-mathematical because we discover new information in the mathematics that, from a point of view, I suppose you could say, well, that contradicts Euclid. Therefore, we know Euclid's right. Therefore, that new geometry is false. No, you can't go that road. Because Euclid only deals with the plane right? But reality has spheres. Einstein, you know, he demonstrated that the universe is infinite, but no boundary, because it's a great big sphere, it's a circle. And the mathematical ways of calculating spheres is very different than calculating a flat surface, a plane, yeah? And the reason I'm going on, on and on with this seemingly unconnected diversion is because there is not, uh, how would I put this without, I'll probably contradict myself, so <laughs> those of you who want to really get one up on me, you might be, be, I might be handing you the glorious chance. There is not one uh, basis of objectivity with which to judge all else. I, I, that's pretty generic, I know. I know, I know. But what I mean is, the now, if you've never read Suetonius in the Twelve Caesars, you really need to do so.
This was absolutely fascinating. One, they were heinous. Many of the Caesars were just, they were vile. The other really interesting thing, now I've always kind of viewed them as, before I read Suetonius, as barbaric, not real religious minded, etc. Uh, these guys were, so to speak, from a certain point of view, very superstitious. Both in their birth, omens, and the omens that begin to trickle into their lives as they approach the end of their lives. And some of the ways that they read those omens is absolutely ingenious. Really, really interesting. But we can't use their experience, their Roman cultural basis of truth and reality, and to them, now, nobody was more hard-headed than the Romans. I mean, come on. And yet they were so, from one point of view, so superstitious. From another point of view, they would argue, that's not superstitious, that is our spirituality, that is our, that is our religious outlook, and that has to be a part of our human experience. Well, the Greeks also had their experience, and they had their uh, mysteries, I'll put it that way, perhaps. Uh, they had their religion, they had their gathering. Now, see, under the Romans, uh, one of the key uh, religions ended up being Mithraism for several hundred years, and it really did appeal excellently to the Roman soldiers. In the Greeks, they had their uh, symposia. What the Greeks did is they uh, separated more or less the men from the women, right? And the men would get together, you know, Plato talks about the way he's got a book called The Symposium, him and Socrates, where the men would get together and have a good old boys club and swig the beer and talk about every manner of subject and philosophize and solve all of the world's problems. And more or less, the women were just left out. You just stay home and sweep and sew. Well, the women said, kiss off. Not going to happen here, cowboy. You know, you can, you can stick it in the mud, pal. And this, this was where Dionysus, the, the mysteries of uh, Dionysus came into play. Because the women would take off at a certain time of the year, and they'd all just run up to the hills and have their orgiastic parties. Understand that the orgiastic parties was part of the interpretation from the men's point of view. What are them women doing up there in those hills, running around butt naked and picking mushrooms and sacred plants, and who's that guy that they're with, and so on and so forth, right? So, of course, they're going to interpret it in a negative fashion. But it was the way the women dealt with being cooped up all year long because they were supposedly disempowered. Yeah. Now, it's really remarkably interesting that it was the goddess 
who set up the mysteries in the first place. I mean, she's the one. Demeter and Persephone. When she lost Persephone to Hades, when Hades came and abducted Persephone, Demeter was so mad that Zeus knew about that, she refused to fertilize the earth. She said, nope, let everybody starve clear to death. I don't give a flying flip. Now, of course, the way the Greek uh, materials were set up is there was a symbiotic relationship between the heavens and the earth in the Greeks where the gods really did need the humans and the humans really did need the gods and Demeter broke that. She was going to let all the humans disappear which would mean all of the gods became superfluous. So eventually through her hard-headedness, justifiably so, I might add, uh, Demeter got things worked out. In the process, she is the one that began the Eleusinian mysteries. So, see the, the patriarchal point of view that, uh, well, everything worthwhile, everything that's worth doing comes from the man. The woman doesn't have anything to contribute. <laughs> Dream on. That's not how it works. And the really interesting experience of the Islamic with their, and I mean this book, dozens of scholars in the early Christian materials, the Jewish materials, the Kabiroi, the ancient Dionysian materials, the Greek materials, the Attic materials, uh, the medieval materials, just absolutely astonishing coverage in this fabulous book. But the idea of uh, the mysteries weren't about learning something. It was more involved with uh, doing, to have the experience, yeah, and and the real interesting thing is, in for instance, I pick I pick the Islamic, uh, not the Kabiroi, not the Eleusinian. I'm trying to. Oh, four pieces. Oh yes, the mystery of the Kaaba, by Fritz Meyer. Uh, this was so interesting because. Even within the uh, even within the religion, there was tension. There was a, there was a, a give and a take between the orthodoxy and the individual mystic, and the experience, the way to. I'll put it this way, for lack of a better way, right off the top of my head, the way to wake up the universe and let it know, hey, we're trying to communicate with you. And, and this is, don't, don't take that real literal. And yet it is meant to be literal. Their activities, their rituals, I'll say, of circling the Kaaba. Now, now the Kaaba, that's the black meteorite stone that fell from heaven. See? And it's over there on the Temple Mount today in Jerusalem, and it's the most sacred site for the Muslims. 
Well, the legends, of course, they, the, through the ages, there's an accretion of meanings and additions and all that, and they're wonderful and fun to read. Abraham, of course, sacrificed Isaac on this Kaaba, this black meteorite stone, this Betel, and they called it the Omphalos. This is the center of the world, the center of the universe. This has every meaning. And when Adam died, he was buried there. And when Christ was crucified, the, the cross was put on the skull of Adam on this very stone that was under the ground at the time. And, you know, you get all these kind of things. The idea is there was a connection between the heavens and the earth, and uh, we are either the intermediary or we are the entire show. And there's a little bit of everything involved there, right? But it was the activity that addressed to the physical stuff, you know, the, the black stone, uh, the ground surrounding it was considered holy. That was the idea of, uh, I mean, when you look up uh, into the dark sky, and, you know, right now it's January, and so I, I go out my back door and look at the stars, and in the south is blazing just absolutely fantastic. Orion and Sirius, his faithful dog, uh, the main star Sirius, and you see his three stars in his belt, and, you know, the hunter is right there, just blam, right up on the southern sky. And he's very, very high above the horizon. There is a participation, I'll put it that way. There is a, uh, a connecting, a, a grasping that we, we belong to the universe. And the universe belongs to us. And it's not a matter of just exploiting other people for our own acquisition of wealth. I want to become rich, so I hire 50, 60, 70 people to do things for me that makes me richer than all of them, but I do pay them okay. The ancients had none of that. It was about a communion. Uh, and I choose that word deliberately, yes. I, I know that, that gives you different images uh, depending on what religion you are or if you're any religion at all. It might be a very grotesque word to some people. I, I get all that. That's good. But this communion is a, uh, a participation, a joining with, if you will, not only Mother Earth, uh, we all come from the dust of this earth, and we're all going to the dust of this earth. She is very proud. The Gaia principle from the ancient Kabiroi and the, the Greeks, this actually goes way back before the uh, northern Indo-European migrations coming south. This is a very old concept, Mother Earth. Well, the idea of communing with Mother Earth, showing proper respect and love, because, uh, make no mistake about it, if Mother Earth decides to quit growing plants, uh, you done. You're dead. It's over. Game over. So Demeter, when she stopped the plant life, Zeus was virtually forced to intervene, apologize, and say, okay, let's, let's work something out here. 
the mythological intention here, don't take it so literal that there's some old hairy guy up in the sky that comes down and talks to a beautiful babe on the earth and says, look, all right, yeah, would you, would you please replant the crops? Don't be so stupid literal with this. Understand the idea of the heavens really do affect this earth. <laughs> the moon and the tides, the sun and light and heat. I mean, that's easy to demonstrate. You can't get away from that. Well, we depend on the plants. The animals depend on the plants. They depend on each other. Water depends on the sunshine. Plants and animals and us, we depend. There is a cycle, there is a very incredible cycle here on earth, chemically, physically, and spiritually. That's the dimension that we moderns kind of get squeamish with, right? And so we like to leave that part out, but you really can't. None of the ancients ever did, and they survived for millennia and did really good. The same principle of in the pyramid texts. Uh, in fact, the Egyptians were probably <laughs> they were probably more involved with involving you as a person with the earth, with with uh, the man-made structures, the pyramids, the mastabas, the tombs. Uh, the hills and the valleys, man, the Nile River. The Nile River was the earthly reflection and counterpart of the heavenly river, the Milky Way, where all souls were said to go to after death. And so the Pharaoh with his sunboat, I mean, this is in the dream of Scipio, too, um, both by Cicero and... Uh, uh, what's his nose? Commentary on, on Scipio's dream. I can't think of his name right now. Anyway, those of you who are better read than I am know what I'm talking about. This theme of the... We have... The ancients knew... I don't know how early... And, and this is still being discussed. Hipparchus is basically the one given the credit. The Greek Hipparchus, the, the astronomer anciently, what? 200 B.C., around that era, uh, of finding the procession of the equinoxes. And, you know, we have the belt of the zodiac that goes all the way around, and the sun travels through the zodiac, and there's 12, you know, I'm a Capricorn, you know, this is the astrology thing. Well, it's tilted at 23 degrees because of the tilt of the earth, so that it, the zodiac line crosses the celestial ecliptic, twice in two spots, the fall and the spring, right? And that is where, according to the ancients, that this is their involvement, this is their participation with the cosmos, right? But but these era these eras, they were called gates, doorways. That's in the Mithras liturgy as well. Really kind of cool in a way. This is where 
the souls of mankind would travel to exit to get beyond the cosmos or further deeper in the cosmos or those souls who have been who are yet to be born they come through the Capricorn side right so my point in all of this quit worrying about well I mean how true and real it is forget all that for the moment understand the uh, the participation the the involvement mentally physically with other groups of people who are trying to enlarge our understanding of just what is all of this stuff what is this stuff all about you know the ancients they didn't have TV or radio like we do so and they didn't have lights physical lights that gave an artificial light uh, during the night when the Sun went down they were done they had to build their fires of course but their entertainment was the night sky and they were very very keen observers and very good uh, astronomers our day is fantastic because of these fantastic new space telescopes that we keep launching and we're learning vastly more of course than the ancients knew and yet in so many regards we're more ignorant than they are the vast majority of our population have never even seen the night sky if you're in a big city because the light pollution from the city covers up the dark sky and they don't even know that there's stars up there and that's really sad the human desire for well appreciation the human desire for uh, certainty the human desire for spirituality the human desire for knowledge and the human desire to share what's good with those you love. All of this cultural uh, group cohesion and yet the human desire to know for oneself if the group attempts to just keep you within its particular chosen bounds this doesn't rest <laughs> it just doesn't look I didn't invent it this way don't get mad at me for telling you <laughs> I'm more or less just the messenger right but this uh, this does not rest it's in all of us now some of us are more successful at squelching that down than others and yeah, I mean, you would expect there's going to be some who mislabel it, who mistreat it, certainly who misunderstand it. That, that's why studying uh, the mysteries from all of the ancient traditions, not in the spirit of, let's find out which one is true and which one isn't. That is to completely miss the point. Seriously, that, that, for, drop that attitude. That doesn't help you. The way to acquire an understanding is to read, well, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, or the Book of the Breathings, or the Pyramid Text. I've got the Coffin Texts over there across from me. Um, 
the way to do it is to, for me, is, is it's a blast to see how the Egyptians did And they were very, very much beholden to the night sky, the stars. The, all of their uh, ritual, their whole thing, I mean, uh, the, whether you like it or not, the pyramids are aligned to certain stars. They even built their buildings that way. Uh, it's really spectacular to see that the Greeks also had that approach. And the early Christians, when they weren't so dang concerned about forcibly converting everyone, uh, Homer had this idea. And the Neoplatonists, the philosophers themselves, were integrating the, uh, the cosmos into our own thinking so that we could explore a broader, wider angle. And yes, it's true, we're nothing but a speck of dust. We're nothing physically. Compared to, I mean, there's some, there's some planets and stars out there, man, that just dwarf the sun. And the sun dwarfs our Earth. But is that the only true <laughs> criteria for mankind? Size? No, of course not. Compared to a flea, we're magnificent. Compared to an elephant, you dang well better be a little bit humble. Yeah, but that size, size doesn't mean anything. This and this make all the difference. This is, I think, this is what the ancients recognized. And in some respects, we're missing that today. And so my intent of studying the mysteries is to, is to get back that, uh, that extra dimension, that extra intention, if you will. Call it spirituality if you want. My, I've, I've kind of changed through the years, and, and I keep changing. It's not because I'm wishy-washy. It's because I keep learning new information, and I try to acquire, adapt, put it all together. And sure, that's going to change my view on a lot of stuff, you know. When you bother to learn geometry, it changes your view on addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. It adds to it, but with three-dimensional shapes, you know. Same thing with calculus. Well, it's the same thing with philosophy. It's the same thing with acquiring other languages. It's the same thing with comparing and contrasting uh, the pyramid texts, the Eleusinian mysteries, the Indian mysteries, the Soma mysteries in the Rig Veda tradition, the Hellenistic mystery religions, and the Romans. When you begin to put all of that together, you realize there is so much magnificent stuff to learn and that rather than looking on the ancients as primitives, as less than we are, it's more enjoyable to try to incorporate it all. And that brings me right back to my good friend's daughter. She's not being incorporated as herself, so my suspicion is if she doesn't uh, end up with too nasty of a flavor in her mouth or a too negative point of view, she will be able to continue growing 
on her individual basis. I think that's my point of this video, is to give you uh, an encouragement. Let's, let's, uh, let's recognize right now that it's not an external religion, it's not an external uh, cultural interpretation or, or ritual or politic or economic view that gives you your value. Your value, we need to begin to recognize, and I think this is one of the real beauties of studying so many of the ancient mysteries in all of the various cultures and contexts, and it's why I'm writing a book on this, because your value, like theirs, when you recognize your value comes from within. Here. And nothing and nobody can take that away from you. Now that's the good news. That's kind of great to know, you know. But you have to recognize that for yourselves. If you agree with letting someone take that away from you, then you can lose that. But your value does not reside, it does, it does reside with other people as well. But the fundamental ground basis of your value comes from you. And that can't be taken away unless you give something or someone permission if you agree with an assessment that you're no good, that you're not spiritual, or that you're too spiritual, or you're stupid or whatever. If you internally agree with that, then you become that. And and that can be that can be a miserable way to be. That's it appears to me that's what this little girl is trying to avoid, bless her heart. That's the right approach. I don't want to go to there if I can't be myself. If I have to be a fake, I'm not interested in being a fake. I'm interested in who genuinely will appreciate me, love me, help me, enjoy these magnificent life experiences with me. That's what you want. I think this is the intent of Joseph Campbell saying, follow your bliss. Find your bliss and then follow it. I, I think that's, that's the real value there, is you base it on what you are genuine about. And it does not have to match anyone else in order for it to be very valuable to you. And if someone comes along and says, oh, well, you idiot, that's a complete waste of time. If you will accept that criticism as valid, then you will cease doing that activity. But if you're doing it from your heart or your mind, and you say, well, maybe to you it is, but I love this and I'm going to keep doing this, See the difference there? You have the power to determine your own value regardless of what anyone else thinks, says, hopes, proposes, speculates, or fights, either with or against you on. And 
and, and, I know, and, and I'll close on this because there is a key that we can use as a ground for our operations in life. I'll put it that way. The key, and it doesn't matter, I don't care if you like him or hate him. It doesn't matter to me whether you even believe he exists or not. Jesus got it right. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I don't care if you're atheist. Ignore the first part. Substitute the word God with universe or earth or whatever. The key is not the label. Don't get hung up on the label for Pete's sake. Forget that. The key is to reach out, connect, observe, participate, and be involved in something that is uplifting to you and those around you. That would be my modern interpretation of that. Don't get so dang hung up on the literal stuff depending on your station in life right now. The key is to participate. And that's what makes these mysteries so fun because every one of these that I've been reading so far is exactly about that participation. Yes, it is better if you can get other people participating with you. That's true. But participation in your heart and in your mind, even if you do it by yourself, go out into the dark and look up away from the city and participate with that utterly mind boggling vision of the heavens. And then do the same with the earth. Look at all the wiggles and squiggles, as Alan Watts says. Observe the fantastic shape, the colors, the textures, the smells of the plants. Or observe a snowfall, recognizing that no two snowflakes are the same shape. Things like that get you involved. And that's the idea. That's the key. That's the idea. So, anyway, that's what I wanted to get across. Thanks for watching my Backyard Professor videos. Uh, do good. Be well. Be kind. Find your... Find what makes you tick. Every day. Every day, learn something new. That's what I do. And I mean it. And, and there are some days, of course, when I really, <laughs> man, I get hot dogging and I get on a roll. And I learn something new, uh, two and three hundred somethings new every single day. But what a way to improve your own vitality. Because you do have vitality. There is no question about that. If you are bored, it's because you are boring. So stop it and find that vitality. If you love to sew, then do it through that. If you love to read books, do it through that. If you love to play baseball, do it through that. If you love to just... Whatever it is, is irrelevant. The thing is to put yourself into it and expand, grow. Grow in excitement. Doesn't matter if you're an auto mechanic. Doesn't matter if you are a garbage collector. It doesn't matter if you pump gas for a living. It does not matter if you cook food. It's irrelevant what you do. It's when you do it with the intent that life can 
and it will astonish you how that will open doors for you. That I can testify of. So, anyway, thanks for watching my videos, and I will see you in the next Backyard Professor video.